Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast, everyone. I'm Eric Ribbonis, and happy holidays. Today we've got a couple of crimes that I guarantee most of you will not be familiar with. I always enjoy learning about these forgotten crimes that were front-page news long ago, but now lost to the past. And again, we've got a couple of those in this episode. I'm pleased to have as my guest today Corey Fry, an author and editor who has written for newspapers across the state of Oregon. His book, parts of which we'll be discussing today, is called Murder in Lynn County, Oregon, The True Story of the Legendary Plainview Killings. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So right off the bat, Lynn County, Oregon. What motivated you to choose Lynn County as the focus of your book? Uh, Well, actually, the... um this is kind of a long story, but I was drawn uh, to the story of the two sheriffs when I was still very young. Let's see. It was the spring of 1989, and I was about 16 years old. And I was really a, a, I was a budding history buff, and I really loved the 1920s because I loved the writers of the Algonquin Roundtable and things like that and, you know, sort of the the, the uh, surgeons of, of gangsters and all those things that a 16-year-old kid would be interested in. And um, around that time, spring of 89, an antique store opened in the area, in the downtown Albany area. I was attending West Albany High School at the time. I was a junior. And uh, one day I went in there, and I'm I'm not really the kind of guy who buys, you know, tchotchkes or um, people's dinnerware or people's clothes or China or things like that. I was more interested in kind of ephemera, you know, documents and scrapbooks, diaries, things of that nature, the kind of, the kind of things that people don't really give up until after they're gone. And I happened to find a, well, coming through the air, coming through the store, I found a uh, 19, an Albany Union, an Albany High School annual from 1921. And it was just this beautiful book. It, it looked brand new. I I paid something like ten dollars for it, and I got it home. And I just started uh, thumbing through the pages and sort of acquainting myself with the kids who populated this book. Uh, I was I was very curious about you know what teenagers did in the 1920s and how they looked. And of course they were uh, they were coiffed and dressed much better than I was. You know I. I wore T-shirts and jeans, and these guys, you know, had pomade in their hair, and they combed it back perfectly, and they wore ties. They were really well-dressed, and I just became really curious about what life was like in Albany in the 1920s for the average teenager. And because it was 1989, I resolved to 
track a few of these people down and call them because they were still, a number of them were still around. They were all in their 80s at the time. And so I went through the phone book and I found listings for, I think I ended up, ended up talking to about 10 people. And I would just, you know, I was young and I had hubris, so I just would cold call them. I would uh, pester them with uh, questions about their childhood and what they did for fun and things like that. And initially they were skeptical, but I think a lot of them sort of understood that I was very earnest in my questions. And we often spoke at great length for a long time, multiple times. And uh, this one particular woman I was speaking with, um, with all of my subjects, I would kind of go through the yearbook and I would call out classmates' names and say, you know, what, what is this person? What was this person like? Who was this person? And um, I, with this woman, I got to the name Clark Kendall. She was a member of the uh, graduating class in 1921. And his nickname, according to the yearbook, was Sheriff. And so I asked her, you know, why did you call him? You know, why did you guys call him Sheriff? Was he like a goody two-shoes or something? And she said, no, if we called him that, it's because Clark's father was the sheriff of, of uh, Lynn County. And then she goes, oh, it's just, it's just terrible what happened to him. And I I, I, I kind of stopped myself and asked, uh, well, what, what happened to the sheriff? And she goes, oh, I, I don't want to talk about it. It's, it's, it's too sad. And so I became kind of frantic. <laughs> I, I was dying to know what happened to this guy. So I, uh, that weekend, one weekend, I went to the library, and I just, just word through hours and hours of microfilm from 1921 to 1923, looking for information on what happened to the sheriff. Initially, I thought that the search would take forever because, um, you know, the, the way the paper was laid out, it was just column after column after column of stories. It was the most cumbersome design you ever wanted to look at. And I thought, I'm, not, I'm never going to find out what happened to this guy until I got, <laughs> until I got to... Um, the newspaper that came out uh, the evening of June 21st, 1922, and it, it it stopped me in my tracks because the headline was just huge. I mean, it was it was the the, the size the size you use when announcing war or announcing an apocalypse. It just said sheriff and minister die. And I, I read the story, and I I read through more articles. And I just kind of kept going, looking for other information, and I ended up finding a year later that his successor had been killed as well, and that that stopped me in my tracks. And I thought because I had never heard these stories before. I'd grown, you know, I was growing up in Albany, and you know, we didn't we didn't learn about either of these incidents. They weren't talked about, and it seemed like they were kind of unknown beyond a certain generation of people. And that was kind of my first real. How should I describe it? It was my first real um, revelation as a young man that history doesn't remember everyone. You know, something awful could happen, and their lives, their their stories could just disappear, and that kind of frightened me as a young man. So I um, I resolved that I would write the story, and I, I tried when I was sixteen, and then a number of years later, I. Uh, was working at the Democrat Herald as a part-time sports writer. And every year at the time, we had this special section called Focus. And it was always a section centered around a theme. And one year, the theme was history. And I, I pitched these stories for that section. And my editors liked it so much that they assigned the story to someone else, which um, didn't please me at the time. But I've, I've learned to live with it since then. And it's been written about a couple of times subsequently since then for the paper, but I always resolved that one day I would do it myself and I would turn it into a long-form book. And when I turn 40, you know, when you, when you turn 40, you kind of take stock of your life. You know, what have you, what have you accomplished? What haven't you done? And this was very high on the list, so I resolved to write it, I resolved to finish it, and I resolved to publish it. So it took me about three years but I, I found a publisher, and it, it came out. Uh, it came out um, in August, and so I'm very pleased with how it turned out. I spoke with family members. I dug way, way deep into the catacombs of the newspaper uh, morgue, 
and I found a number of stories besides, and I, I think it, I think it turned out well. So that that's my long-winded answer to that question. That's great. And I do want to mention this. Most historical true crime books focus on a single case from start to finish, but your book is almost like a mini time capsule focusing on a series of really compelling crimes that happened in Lynn County over the period of a couple of years. Sheriff Charles M. Kendall weaves in and out of the stories, at least until his demise, which we'll certainly talk about. So let's talk about him. Who was Sheriff Charles M. Kendall? Charles M. Kendall was born either in 1867 or 1869, depending on whether you believe his headstone or his uh, death certificate or the newspapers of that time. He was born in uh, Chalfance, Ohio, a city that no longer exists. Uh, he married his wife, Stella, in 1901. And initially, the family uh, the family moved uh, west. First, they uh, established uh, a residence in Northern California, where they kind of settled down for a couple of years, where the Stella had their only son, only child, uh, Clark, in 1901. It, it's interesting because he was um, he was he was the sheriff. He he was also a, something of a something of an architect, but he was probably best known as an entertainer, which I, when researching the book, I thought was an odd vocation for a sheriff to have on the side. But he was he was well known as sort of an interlocutor, the speaker. He had journal after journal of dramatic recitals. Uh, he would read the grave scene in Hamlet's. Uh, he had just oceans of jokes that uh, don't make sense anymore. He would he would recite whole stories, but he was generally known as that, and he he was very well regarded as a public as a speaker, and he may have just continued doing that. But um, he and his family moved to came from a, I think Shasta County town of Millville to Albany in the early 1900s. And uh, he uh, supported himself as a wallpaper hanger and things of that nature. Also, while performing uh, his routines at various schools, reading humorous stories, and gaining a reputation as that among you know such influential people as school superintendents and local dignitaries for his talents in that regard. And um, around 1910, 1911. He became a, a sheriff's deputy, and I've never been able to ascertain why he entered that particular field. No one really has an answer, but he did, and it's it's kind of strange because he did that in his mid-40s, which today I think may be regarded as a little too old to begin a career in law enforcement, but it was a completely different time at that time. There was no Oregon State Police. He didn't have to endure courses or training, you know, someone just put a badge on you, and out you went to enforce the law. And um, he was, people loved him as the sheriff. He was, the people loved him as as a lawman. He was very charismatic, very easy to deal with, very pleasant, tall man, somewhat intimidating, but a, a, from all accounts, just a very good guy. And around uh, 1916, he ran for sheriff. He lost barely. And then in 1918, he ran again, and, and he won by a much larger margin. And um, as I've said before, he was well-regarded in the community. Um, he was considered a, a fair and honest man, and he kind of had to be, because at that time, I, I don't think that the, that the position outside of Albany was held in very high regard, or the person wearing the badge probably wasn't considered an authority on much, so he had to contend with a, a lot of people. He often had to do it without any outside without any outside help or God, how shall I explain this? Um, it was difficult to be a lawman back then because he obviously doesn't have the advantages that police officers have now. He used his own car, which was a 1920 Overland. He, uh, he didn't have much by way of protection. There were no bulletproof vests. You know, at, at most he had a he had a watch in his he had kind of like a watch in his pockets and a badge, and that was all he really wore to signify that he was a man of the law. At that time, there were no car radios. 
So he had to communicate via telegram. He had to communicate via, you know, a welcoming house with a telephone, or there were call boxes positioned around the county. So if you if you went out, if you went out to a place like Plainview, you were kind of lost. You were kind of on your own. You know, you couldn't call for backup. You couldn't really do much. So you kind of had to rely on your wits. You kind of had to maybe. Uh, maybe bend the rules a little to uh, deal with, to deal with someone and to keep them from getting too angry with you. But ultimately, he was just a, a very fair man. He was a loving husband. He was a loving father, and he was very well regarded in the community. Your book goes chronologically from January of 1922 up through 1923, and there are a lot of really interesting cases covered. But since you've just described Kendall so well, and he's fresh in our minds. I'd like to jump to that fatal confrontation Kendall has with Dave West. So let's talk a bit about Dave West first. Who was he, and what was his relationship to the sheriff? Dave West was a farmer in the Plainview area, which is uh, now part of Shed. Uh, only people who live out there call it the Plainview area anymore, and it the name adorns a main street and a community hall, and that's about it. It hasn't existed in a long time. But he uh, he was a farmer who lived out in that area with his wife and her son lived nearby. He was born in Indiana, and he had spent most of his life as a hunter and a trapper, and he was considered very adept at both. He was considered a crack shot, and he kind of trapped and hunted his way to to uh, Oregon with his wife. He was a very intelligent man, but also a very angry man. I think there's a line in the book where I said age had age had a not you know age had not changed. It hadn't lengthened his fuse. He got older. He got angrier, and so he had a very vicious temper. He was known. There were tons of stories about things that he did, and I think they were told that in kind of an, an amused way, but it wasn't very amusing at the time. There's a story in the book that uh, Alan Parker told me, and Alan Parker is a member of the family that owns the Dave West property now and have since the 1940s, about a, another local farmer who uh, had worked out a deal with Dave West to grow oats on his property in exchange for half the bounty. And Dave West grew the oats on his property, but kind of reneged. And so the other farmer confronted him and was just reading him the riot act when he looked down and happened to see that Dave West's fingers were coiling over and over again into a massive fist, and he was literally shaking. And, you know, Alan Parker told me me that this farmer looked down at the size of Dave West's hands and realized, I got to get out of here because this guy's going to hurt me. And so the guy beat a quick and hasty retreat. And uh, Dave West was also known to chase people off his property with clubs. He was known to answer the door with a gun. And uh, I actually found a letter to the editor that he had written in in late 1921. And just the tone of it, I kind of get the impression that he wasn't a very pleasant person. Uh, The letter complained about um, earlier that year, or maybe it was a couple of years earlier, he had uh, gotten in trouble with the uh, game control over his hunt- over his hunting ways, and they uh, confiscated his rifle and all of his traps, and he took them to court and won. And he was kind of gloating about that, and I kind of get the impression that he was very much stuck in kind of older ways, he remembered a different America that may, maybe didn't have as many restrictions as it did at that as it did in his time, and he sort of felt that life had dealt him an unfair hand. He was also very generous with his neighbors and his friends, and he was very devoted to his wife and to her children. He had a he had a woodshed on his property, and inside this woodshed he made moonshine. He made moonshine, and he also made a liniment. He would give the moonshine to his neighbors, and he would produce this liniment for his wife. Gosh, I don't know what more to say about him other than that he was kind of very much adherent to an old code that may have been foreign to you know, a city dweller like Charles Kendall or anyone who stopped in from the city. 
We will be back after a brief break. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So let's talk about the day of June 21st, 1922. And we should probably mention that Dave West was was making moonshine during Prohibition. (laughs) And Sheriff Kendall, among his many duties, was to follow up on rumors and reports of illegal liquor. So Kendall visits the West home, and there happens to be a gathering there. There are kids there, neighbors. Sheriff Kendall decides to take someone along with him, the Reverend Roy Healy. And it's not something a law enforcement officer typically does, partnering up with clergy on calls. Can you explain why he does this and how things escalate once they arrive? Yeah, well, I'll I'll, I'll do my best to explain that. Um, About a week before this happens, Sheriff Kendall and the Lynn County District Attorney, a man named L. Guy Llewellyn, they're invited to meet with a recently organized group called the Brownsville Good Citizenship League in Brownsville. And I don't know much about the body of this league other than it was made up of clergymen. It was made up of, I I would think, very prominent local people because they were able to, in their infancy, get this, get an audience with, you know, various powerful people in the, in the uh, England County. And this was, in fact, only their second meeting. So they invite Elgai Llewellyn and Charles Kendall to talk about the growing menace of liquor distribution and liquor manufacturing in Lynn County, and a lot of it's out in the country where you know people just you know people just do it, and they you know they share it among their neighbors and things like that. And so they go to this. So uh, Llewellyn and Kendall go to this meeting, and they talk about it, and there's a lot of lip service to doing something about it. And I believe Roy Healy was part of this congregation, part of this league, and that he was there. And I think he may have known about Dave West. I've heard various stories from different families who live out in that area about the reverend's participation in this, and none of them are good. But anyway, I think a number of names are thrown around of people who are violating the laws, and Dave West is one of them. And so I think, uh, I believe, um, Elgai Llewellyn basically gets Kendall to sort of appease this this organization by going out. He, he has a number of warrants. He files for a number of warrants, gets them, and he goes out to this area to uh, talk to all of these people. I think there were like five or six people named, although I've never been able to ascertain their names. 
other than Dave West to do, to, uh, do something about this liquor menace that's haunting the county. And Dave West is actually the first person he visits. Roy Healy is there. I think I've, I've heard a number of stories. Uh, the most accepted one is that he was writing a book on liquor law enforcement and what better way to write about it than to actually go out on an arrest. I've also heard stories from descendants of families who still live in the Plainview area that Healy was um, key in something of a uh, 1920-style sting operation where he called, where he contacted Dave West under the pretense that he needed medicine for his wife and that the two of them rolled out there. And it was basically a case of, ha-ha, surprise, look who I brought with me. And um, it's kind of funny because as, as I... As I've said, I've talked to the descendants of people who live out there who obviously see the uh, Dave West incident through a different prism than those of us in the city. While they hold they hold Sheriff Kendall in very high regard, he was well-loved. I mean, they, they have nothing but kind words to say about him. But when it comes to the reverend, for some reason, they're not that cordial toward him. In fact, one of the families told me, although it's not in the book, this gentleman said, after that incident, my great grandfather never set foot in the church again. He said they're all they're all criminals and liars, and I don't want anything to do with religion, which I, which I thought was kind of strange. But it, it does give some, give a little insight into how Healy was regarded by these people. But in any case, uh, that afternoon they end up at Dave West's house to um, do something about this moonshine still, which is sitting in a woodshed and is emanating has has been emanating this peculiar odor for a long time so anyone who visited the property kind of knew it was there because it was impossible to miss and um a lot of what happened at on the property is from an account given by Dave West's wife so I'm not sure how truthful it is and how much of it has been embellished to paint her husband in a more sympathetic light but what happened was they went to the front door Roy Healy and uh, Sheriff Kendall went to the front door. Dave West was outside working. There were a number of children running around playing. And Dave West's wife, Ellen West, answered the door. And the sheriff asked if she had any liquor inside the house. And she said, oh, you know me better than that, Sheriff. But she, uh, she remembered a liniment bottle that she had in one of the rooms. And she brought that back and he kind of opened it and passed it under his nose and said, no, I'm looking for moonshine. And at that point, Dave West came in, wanted to know why the sheriff was interrogating his wife, bothering his wife, and what was this preacher doing here? You know, what business did they have on his property? And the three men kind of retired to the kitchen to talk about it. And um, apparently Dave West told them where the, where the still was in this woodshed, but he pleaded... They'll take take the still if you want, but please don't don't break up my property. And according to the Brownsville Papers accounts, Sheriff Kendall sort of retorted with, "You are an old fool for doing anything like this," which apparently punched the wrong buttons in Dave West, who obviously didn't like being called an old fool. So the sheriff and the reverend went out to the still, which was close to the road where they had pulled in to uh, take the still out and dissemble it. And while they were doing that, Dave West, fuming and growing even angrier, grabbed a rifle from the living room and, according to Ellen West, ran up, came, went out the side door and kind of crept around to the barn and he wasn't, well, he wasn't seen. And as the sheriff came back to the, to the side door of the house, carrying a couple of bottles of moonshine, he'd set them down near the gate. He had to go through a gate to get back to the house. The shot rang out, clipped him in the shoulder, and he got him right in the heart. And he fell down dead. And the Reverend Healy, who had kind of wandered over to the south side of the property, heard the shot, turned around, and saw Kendall dead on the ground and he knew that he was in trouble because this was the only other armed man 
he was, this, this was the only armed man he knew who was on his side. So he began running. He first, he screamed into the hills. They've shot Kendall. Somebody, somebody phone. And then he ran around the side of the house and was coming out onto the road that came into that, that came toward the, that, uh, came toward the house. And, uh, at this point, all the children have been shooed home because there was a discussion before Dave West went out to take care of business, so to speak. And the women, he was there with a, he was there with um, his wife and um, family members of uh, Ellen West, the Diatleys, Harry and Myrtle Diatley and their children. And, and Harry was um, working on a hay harvest at one of the one of the neighbors' houses. And so it was a, like you said, it was a full house of people and they, they argued back and forth. And Dave West finally said, you know, they, if they'd come here like gentlemen, that would be all right, but they can't break things up. And that's, and he ran outside and did what he felt he needed to do. So back to the Reverend, he's running around the side of the house. Ellen West and Merle Diatley are kind of watching him past the windows and he gets to the main road and another shot fills the air. And it's my impression that the first shot missed him, but then the, there's a second shot, and that that got him, and he fell hard into the lawn by by the the, uh, the vehicles by uh, Sheriff Kendall's vehicle. And the, the Reverend was just trying to get out of there and find a neighbor who would shelter him from all of this, but uh, the Reverend was dead as well. There was the usual panic and confusion at how this had escalated. Ellen, you know, it was decided that Ellen West had to call Harry Diatley home. And at that time, there weren't, uh, a lot of farmers didn't have telephones back then, that the area wasn't really wired for telephones until the 1940s. But somehow, somehow the West had a telephone. And I, I confirmed this by finding their phone number in a 1922 phone book about a month before the incident occurred. And so Ellen called the switchboard at the uh, local general store and asked uh, the operator and a woman named Anna Bonar to send someone to the uh, neighbor's house. The neighbors were the Mannings and they're still a prominent farm farming family out there now. But at this time they're just getting started. And uh, Anna was asked to send someone out to the Manning farm and to retrieve Harry Diatley and have him come home and they would decide what to do. And so Harry came home, and he was just aghast at what he found. And he came inside the house, and uh, Dave West was sitting in a chair with his rifle. And Harry, uh, according to Harry, he pleaded, My God, Uncle Dave, what have you done? And Dave West said, Yes, I'm in real trouble, but they're never going to get me. He said, This is what we're going to do. You're going to, you're going to go to town. You're going to call the coroner. You're going to tell him, bring one man down and one man only to retrieve the bodies. If I see anyone else, I will kill them. And so Harry and his family went back to the Manning's house, and um, Harry and George Manning, the patriarch of the Manning clan, drove back to the general store to call, to call the coroner in Albany. And they repeated the instructions, bring one man, bring one man only. If I see anyone else, he's dead. And so the, the coroner uh, recruited the DA to go out with them. And um, as, the, as they were getting in the car to go out there, they were stopped by a reporter who was kind of wondering what was going on. And they, they told him what was happening. And so suddenly the newspaper had the story and they had to tear apart the front page of the paper they had just finished and was out on the street to accommodate this new story. And so the uh, the uh, district attorney and the coroner went out to get the bodies. But um, when they got there, by this time word had spread around the area of what had happened. So now they come, they arrive at this house, and there are all these other farmers there. And what happened was um, the DA rounded up these farmers. He t- he told the coroner, Mr. Fisher, that um, it probably was best that that he not go for the bodies too soon, not make himself visible. And the coroner, of course, agreed because he, he had no compunction to, uh, to attempt a sharpshooter. And then the district attorney recruited 
a number of farmers, specifically those who were armed, and he kind of banished everyone who wasn't armed to an area around, an area safely off the road where they wouldn't be spotted or they wouldn't be in any danger. And shortly after this, a number of reporters, you know, reporters from different newspapers around the state that sort of trickled in as night was beginning to fall. And they were recruited into these these posses as well, and they went off and interviewed. They interviewed uh, Harry Diatley and Myrtle Diatley at the, um, the home of the Mannings. They talked to Ellen West, who had uh, been sent down after after supper. Dave had sent her down to her, her son's house, her son George's house, was just down the lane. And, you know, they had... They had had dinner, they had had supper, and it was obviously a very tense last meal. And they they had talked about what was going to happen next. And he said, well, I'm probably, there's a strong likelihood that I'm not going to get off this property alive. And even if I do, I'm a dead man anyway, because if I even make it to courts, if if I even go to courts and go through a full trial, they're going to hang me. I'm going to die no matter what happens. And so rather than put you through all of that, I'm just going to end it today. And I don't want you to be here when that happens. I promise not to do it in the house. You know, I don't want to ruin the life we have here. I don't want you around. I just kind of want you to visit your son, you know, go, go to your son George's house. And I kind of want you to have a good life after this. But I, I obviously am not going to be around much longer. So she left, went to George's and went to uh, George's house and talked to reporters there about her husband, about his predicament, and said that I, I believe he will do what he said he was going to do. And uh, the night kind of continued on. People were still, the posses and such were still wary of Dave West still lurking around the property, either in the house or in the barn or somewhere watching them. And they were also worried that he had maybe hightailed it to the hills just past the Dave West place and that he was up he was up there and he would be practically, they wouldn't find him. He would have an advantage. He was used to hunting and things like that. And they probably wouldn't take him, probably gone forever at that point. But at some point during the night, even through sheer boredom or rising rising uh, bouts of courage, a member of one posse around the house threw a rock through the window, threw, threw the kitchen window, and got into the house. Other people had their uh, cars lined up in front of the house, and they were pointing their pointing their spotlights and their headlights at the house as these other guys went through it. And the district attorney was kind of throwing a fit because uh, one of the Oldland County Sheriffs was sequestered behind a, a hedgerow near the house, and the DA, DA was worried that the old sheriff would, would see the uh, see movement in the house and fire upon it. Anyway, they, these people searched the house, but they found no Dave West. And then someone shouted, Everybody, throw your spotlights on the barn! And so they did, and these these men very trepidatiously with their rifles kind of crept up to the barn. And what they discovered was by that time, someone had already gotten into the barn. This uh, young man from Brownsville who had been with the uh, Brownsville newspaper, but was also armed, had entered the barn and he was kind of walking or he was kind of walking around in the dark and he tripped over something. And um, he kind of uh, sat up and realized that he had, he had come face to face with what remained of Dave West, that Dave West had in fact killed himself, true to his reputation, he hadn't missed. So the sheriff, the man who was appointed to finish Kendall's term, his name was Bill Dunlap. Bill Dunlap also dies in the line of duty, and it's a strange set of circumstances that leads to his death. Sheriff Dunlap gets a call one day about a speeding car and a reckless driver, and he responds. Could you tell the rest of the story? Uh, well, he uh, responds in a very unorthodox way. Um, yes, he, he uh, did get a report of a, a car taken from Harris, uh, Harrisburg Church parking lot, the 19, uh, 1919 Maxwell. It's now driving erratically and very fast. It is barreling hard toward Albany. 
and he gets this call, and he um, his uh, prophet, his prophet deputy, a man named J. Ellsworth Lillard, who appears a number of times in the book, but becomes a, a fairly prominent character in this particular chapter. Uh, he asks him to come out and help him. I, I should say that the traffic uh, cop, uh, J. Ellsworth Lillard, his uh, vehicle is a motorcycle to sidecar. So he, uh, he gets Lillard to go out and help him stop this, uh, these car thieves. And uh, strangely, he also, he also invites his wife and their house guest, a woman named Geraldine Hamilton, along with him. I'm not sure why. I don't know that <laughs> it's, it's, it's inexplicable to me why he invited these two women along, I guess, maybe to show, you know, to show himself in action or something. But um, they go out, and this this is all taking place south of Albany, deep toward the flat country, This and it, it ends right around the uh, McFarland School, which... The building still exists, although I'm not sure what it is now. I think it's an administration building for a school district or something. But um, they they chase this car down. Dunlap pulls up and pulls up ahead of it to stop it. And Ellsworth Lillard comes up from behind. He steps off his motorcycle. He goes to the car. He talks to the driver, and he says, "We know where you got this car." And by then, uh, the sheriff has has joined his um, fellow officer at the uh, driver's side of the car, and he says, you are, Dunlap says, you are under arrest. And there are two people in this car. One is named Ruley Johnson, and the other is a man named George Parker. And they're kind of unresponsive in this situation. They're, they don't really resist arrest. They don't really talk back. It's all very routine. And they, they have this interesting quandary. They have two prisoners, and the only means of transportation they have back are the sheriff's car with these two women in it and this motorcycle, the sidecar. And obviously these two prisoners aren't going to be transported in the sidecar. And the sheriff doesn't want him, doesn't want these two gentlemen at the car with his wife and their house guest. So they have to come up with a way to get everyone back to Albany in the least painful way possible. So it's decided that what's going to happen is that the sheriff's wife and the family's house guest are going to drive the sheriff's car back. Willard is going to drive the motorcycle with the empty sidecar back. And Dunlap is going to ride in the stolen car driven by the two criminals, which is kind of an unorthodox, kind of an unorthodox way to, to uh, transport criminals. But the key to all of this is that in their zeal to arrest these men, neither Lillard nor Dunlap check them for weapons. And so what happens is the sheriff is in the backseat of this Maxwell, Ruley Johnson is driving, George Parker is in the passenger seat, and they're driving, they're making their way back to Albany, incident-free. But as they approach the city, Ruley Johnson inexplicably leans toward Parker, and Dunlap says... You fellows better not start anything. And that's pretty much the last thing he said. Because what happened after that was George Parker turned around with a pistol in his hand, pointed directly at the sheriff. And the sheriff, of course, is absolutely horrified at this turn of events. And he kind of scrambles, reaching for the side door to get out of his car. And George Parker gets a shot off, hits him in the ribs, before he can get out, the sheriff falls, and the sheriff finally throws the side door open, falls out of the car, and uh, Lillard's behind him, behind the car, watching all of this in absolute horror, and he sees the sheriff hit the street. The sheriff pops back up to his feet. Lillard pulls over and says, how badly are you hurt? And the sheriff just kind of waves him off. He gets in the motorcycle sidecar, and what had once been this routine semi-routine or eerily, strangely, uniquely routine, very unique uh, prison transfer becomes what passes for a high-speed chase through Albany with um, Lillard and Dunlap chasing after the Maxwell firing like crazy and the sheriff's wife and their house guest following, trying to follow behind 
and growing more and more despondent at this turn of events, Lillard loses them for a few minutes, and then they kind of meet around um, Ninth and Elm in a, what is now is what is downtown Albany now. And um, the Maxwell swings a hard left onto Elm, and the officers are still, you know, everyone's still firing at each other. And uh, Lillard fires off this shot that gets Willie Johnson in the steering hand, the left hand, and the car loses control and smashes into a wood pile near this house. And so the car is basically stopped. Uh, Parker and Johnson get out of the car, and they, they just take off running. And Lillard gets off his motorcycle, and he pursues them. Dunlap gets out of the gets out of the sidecar, and he's starting to chase them, but he's just bleeding too badly from his wound, and he manages to make it a few feet running, and he just he fires a shot into the street and just collapses. And then he, he kind of slowly gets back up to his feet, even more slowly than before. And by this time, his wife has found him, and he tells her, I, you know, I need to go to the hospital because I'm, I'm going fast here. I'm, I'm probably not going to make it. And so she takes him to the hospital. Lillard continues chasing these two guys. They, uh, they run down this alley between 9th and 10th Street, and um, Rudy Johnson takes off to the right, and George Parker continues sprinting directly ahead. And so Lillard concentrates on him, and then suddenly uh, Parker just disappears, and uh, Lillard is frantically running around the neighborhood, and by then all, all the neighbors are out because they've heard shots in the street and people yelling. And uh, one, of the, one of the nearby neighbors tells Lillard he's hiding in the outhouse on this property over there. By that time, Lillard's gun is empty, and so another neighbor helpfully offers, helpfully tells him that one of the neighbors has a rifle he can use. So Lillard goes to this guy's house, the guy gives him the rifle, and he uh, strides down to this outhouse with this rifle in hand. He knocks on the outhouse door and demands that Parker, demands that Parker give up and get out, and get out of this outhouse. And of course, there's no response. And so he knocks again, makes the same demand, and again, there's no response. And finally, Lillard, who's just absolutely fed up with everything that's, that's happened that day, he gets, he gets the rifle and he points it at the door, but not at the point where he might might hurt the guy inside. And he just and he just opens fire. He fires. He fires the gun, and finally, there's this howl from within. And George Parker emerges with this hole in his leg, and he's placed in custody. And um, really, Johnson is still quote-unquote, at large, but they quickly find him hiding under a house. And he's, he's wounded, he's dirty, and he's tired. And they um, take him into custody as well. And they both end up at the same hospital where Dunlap is, although Dunlap's wounds are seriously more grave. And Dunlap lasts through the night, but dies the next morning from his injuries. And uh, that day, Ruby Johnson and George Parker, who is now considered a murderer, are taken to the Lynn County Jail, and they're flanked by a bunch of police officers, because by now, you know, the, the town has gone through so much. They've lost a sheriff before. They've, they've just had the worst two-year run ever. <laughs> and so they have. And so, the, so tensions are high, tempers are frayed. And so it was, it was feared that, you know, attempts would be made on the lives of these two prisoners. They inevitably go to court after they're, they're fully healed, and they're given a court date. And while they wait for that court date, uh, they make an escape attempt. And their, their attempt is discovered when the uh, interim sheriff, who's replaced Dunlap, is walking back from the courthouse, which was near the jailhouse, Walking back from the courthouse to the jailhouse, and he happens to see he sees George Parker in the jailhouse yard where there's supposed to be where there's supposed to be no one at that moment. So he gives chase. He he accosts George Parker, but um, by this time, Louis Johnson is gone. People have had theories about where he went, and people said that he hid in the trees until nightfall and then left town. Uh, people cited him all over town, but to this day, Ruby Johnson has never, ever been found. And in fact, he was considered a fugitive from the law until the 1980s, when I actually, as a young man, 
saw an article on him in the local paper. Uh, so he's never been found. Nobody's ever collected the reward for his capture. George Parker was forced to uh, face the music alone, and he was quickly found guilty and sentenced to hang, although he didn't hang for a, a number of months. And in that time, they you know they asked him if he uh, regretted and, you know, how, how he felt. And they asked him how he felt about Willie Johnson, and he said that, well, this wasn't Johnson's fault. I killed the sheriff. I should pay the penalty for, for it. In early 1923, he hanged for the crime of killing Sheriff Dunlap. So we'll leave things here. And again, there are lots of other really interesting crimes in your book, and we can let listeners discover those on their own should they choose to do so. So where can people buy your book and learn more about you? Uh, Well, the book is uh, available on Amazon and various places online, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, available through iTunes, Google Play. Uh, if you want a tangible copy, you can find them at three Powell stores in Portland. Um, gosh, where else can you find it? Now, if you want to make your way down to Albany and tour a lot, and tour a lot of these uh, landmarks and such, you can, uh, it's available at the Regional Museum. You can check it out at various libraries throughout the states. Uh, it's everywhere. I was really kind of pleased with the distribution, but it's it's not impossible to find. Well, thank you so much for your time. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. All right. Thank you. You as well. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. If you haven't done so already, if you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating or review. I would appreciate it tremendously. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.